nice bit of sunburst going on. <laughs> Smile, everyone. Great. So that's going straight up onto Twitter, of course. Good evening. My name is Chris Anderson. I'm from London. Uh, but it's uh, a great pleasure to be with you here on this glorious early summer's evening. Um, I'd like to uh, thank uh, the Milgram Foundation and M Pavilion for inviting me to be with you here today and to speak to you on my chosen topic uh, for M Pavilion, this notion of designing our future selves, how life in the 21st century is remodeling what it means to be human. Now, before I go into some detail explaining maybe what that means, I'd like to give you a quote that we use at the Future Laboratory when we think about the role and the impact of technology. We say, technology doesn't transform society. Society transforms itself using technology. So I'm going to talk to you in the time that I've got about the new social mores and trends that are highlighting how this tech-obsessed 21st century citizen that we've all become is redesigning expectations around ownership, sharing, a sense of self, and an obligation to society in what is really a very me-focused era of the selfie, the photobomb, constant comment, continuous partial attention, convergence, and the internet of things. Now, what precisely do we use technology for? Now, of course, Tim Berners-Lee, who is regarded as the founder of the World Wide Web, way back in mid-November 1989, proposed, or in that year, really, of 1989, proposed an information management system and then started to explore how it could be used to implement communication between what he called a hypertext transfer protocol which, of course, is HTTP, which is part of every single URL address that you use on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, and how between a client and a server and via an internet connection, that could actually start to create dialogue and communication. And for him, this was a technological process that was about establishing co communication between often academics, between research organizations, between universities. It was designed to be highly focused, highly specific, and often highly technical. Segway to 2014. And what do we all use the World Wide Web for? For shopping, for looking, and for chatting. Not particularly scientific, not particularly technological. Because in fact, we use it for the things that matter to us on a daily basis. We have potentially, indeed, bludgeoned what was once a highly scientific and highly technological platform into something that is absolutely domestic and nothing more than a garden fence or a shopping uh, window or a magazine. Are we tech-obsessed here in the 21st century? For millions of us across the globe, a living a day without technology is almost unthinkable. Often, our phones are with us our entire day. Indeed, it's been noticed or observed across culture now that this thing is more likely to accompany you than your front door keys. You are more likely to leave your front door key behind when you go leave the house in the morning than your mobile phone. And in, it's, it's something that often is it's, it's the last thing you might touch at night and the first thing that you will touch when you wake up in the morning. Now, 
when you're in bed, I think that's a pretty sorry state of affairs. There are other things I could think about touching while I'm in bed. By 2017, almost half of the world's population, that's 3.5 billion of us, will regularly use the Internet. And, of course, the Internet is no longer something that is defined by these, a, a laptop or um, a PC, a desktop computer. How 20th century that now sounds. Because, of course, 2014 also marks the year in which the majority of us accessed the Internet through one of these, a mobile phone. So the way that we use the Internet and the way we engage with technology is now handheld, it's portable, and it's with us 24 hours a day. Welcome, then, to the 21st century. Because surely that's the point. That's where we are now. We are no longer 20th century citizens. We surely are embarking upon the journey of what it means to be a 21st century citizen, where what was fit for purpose in the 20th may not be fit for purpose in the 21st. So, is it time to chuck out the chintz? Is it time to rethink what is relevant and what is right, what is ethical, what is moral, what is true and what is good here as we embark upon the journey of understanding what it means to be human, to be part of society in the 21st century? Well, before we do that, and before maybe we, we venture out into the future, let's just think back a hundred years. Let's remember what we were all remembering yesterday. Let's think about the Russian Revolution. Let's think about the birth of Hollywood, a hundred years old this year. The Model T Ford, and how wireless, telephone, and electricity all came to the fore in the 1910s. That was the decade in which many of these inventions became mainstream, became mass-manufactured, and became something that citizens could use on a daily basis. So can we say the same thing about 2014? That we are witnessing the birth of technologies, of means of communication, of platforms of change that will be as seismic in their impact on the way that we think in the future. I'd like you to think, some of you may recall, an image that you would have found in American Vogue back in April of this year. It was an image taken by the celebrated photographer, which one? Annie Leibovitz, of course. And it featured a certain woman, Kim Kardashian. Or, as she recently told me when I bumped into her at the GQ Awards, uh-uh, honey, no, I'm Kim Kardashian West. Because, of course, that's her status now. She is a global megastar. And this particular picture, uh, picture by Annie Leibovitz features Kim holding her new baby, holding, of course, a mobile phone, taking a selfie of herself in her home, while her husband, Kim, is using his iPad to take a picture of his wife and his child while they are taking a picture of themselves, while they, of course, are being taken by Annie Leibovitz. The layers of irony in that photograph really struck me as we start to begin to understand the impact of living in this selfie society. 
But the understanding that lies beneath our, our thinking about a selfie society is not new. Back in 1967, the French sociologist Guy Debord, who was part of the, the situationist movement in France, started to observe about how our social lives were being replaced by their own representation. And today, here we are in what we call the turbulent teens. This statement, I believe, is more insightful than ever, that in this time of technological and sociological upheaval, we edit our multiple identities in an online spectacle because we know that the world is watching. And as de Boer commented in The Society of the Spectacle, published in 1967, all that was once directly lived has become mere representation. This idea that we move through a process of authenticity or reality to explore layers of representation. Now, de Boer argued that the history of social life can be understood as the decline of being into having, and having into merely appearing. And this condition, according to de Boer, is the historical moment at which the commodity completes its colonization of social life. And by social life, of course, he means society and the success and the f future of society. So this idea that spectacle or the spectacle is the inverted image of society in which relations between commodities have supplanted relationships between people, in which passive identification with the spectacle supplants genuine activity, lies at the basis, I think, of our interest in the selfie. The spectacle, de Boer writes, is not a collection of images. Rather, it is a social relationship between people that is mediated by images. So in this analysis, de Boer notes that the quality of our lives is increasingly impoverished with such a lack of authenticity that human perceptions are affected, that there's also a degradation of knowledge with a hindering of critical thought. So some of the warning signs that some thinkers or philosophers were beginning to identify started to appear 50 years ago. Now, in 2011, as an organization, the Future Laboratory, we identified what we called the rise of the personal information economy, that we have become part of a trader generation. We all have something to buy and sell. We are no longer simply consumers consuming product, that intangibles and ideas and concepts can be as important to us as traditional 20th century product, defined by the idea that you could drop it on your foot. And this idea that increasingly the digital world actually understands and respects that each of us as a personal individual has a worth is also changing this notion of self. So amid these shifts, we are, of course, here in the 21st century, um, witnessing the change of our traditional belief systems and our collectivist norms. Most of them are crumbling. If I was to ask you all to stand up, I won't. But if I did, imagine you were all standing. And then I said, stay standing, please. If you attend church at least four times a year, how many of you do you think would be left standing? Two percent. If I said, how many of you, please stand, continue to stand. If you still belong and are an active participant in a union, how many of you would still be standing? If I asked how many of you are active participants 
in a civic or citizen-based organisation, a Rotarian, a Shriner, if you have such a thing here in, Australian, in Australia, or a member of the WI, the Women's Institute, a good, old-fashioned, traditional civic organisation that exists to provide a platform of exchange of ideas, communication and support between communities and between citizens. How many of you would still be standing? The truth is, of course, that the majority of the pillars of society that supported us in the 20th century no longer matter to us here in the 21st. And increasingly, our subcultures, our new pillars, are born in a day, co-opted by the mainstream, and declared dead on Tumblr the next. That is why we live in a state of continuous partial attention. It's why we're part of the sharing economy. It's why we're interested in FOMO, fear of missing out, or indeed JOMO, the joy of missing out. And this is the landscape informing how we shop, how we socialize, and how we share our lives. And if, for one minute, we criticize an emphasis on these central tenets to our existence here in the 21st century, we do so at our peril. Because consumerism is probably the only traditional pillar that we have left. So what matters to the 21st century citizen? Do we have time to stop and reflect on that word as we think about the difference between self and civics? Well, we don't, because time is marching on. We face numerous questions. Is the individual in crisis? As digital and physical worlds blur, how should we react to this closing gulf? And if experiences are replacing durable goods as a lifetime commodity, just what should we invest in? Well, surely the sense of self defines that. That's why the word selfie or the term selfie has grown by 17,000 times in the last 12 months. And as Dr. Lloyd Sederer, the medical director at the New, York State of, uh, the New York State Office of Mental Health recently commented, in the new social world, it is not that we are trying to be all things to all people, but rather we have to be all things to our own self-image. That's what we currently have to impress as we pin, post, and preen our way to an ideal identity online. New personality fragments are forming the components of a sharded self, not a faceted self, but one that has indeed already been broken, is in shards, where we can actually inhabit as many lives as we like. And when we spoke to Demos recently, one of the think tanks in England that, exhort, that uh, analyzes social media, we now create several versions of the self, all with different personalities and personas, not just between the online and the offline worlds, but also different versions of the online self. And it's in this world, as we establish more time online, as we create new rituals, that our friends become an audience. We publish to them. Our lives become a grand narrative. Our identities become multiplex, multiposed, and multipresent as we create fictions about who we are, who we want to be, and the stories that we want to pose. We become part of a self-disclosure society. And indeed, that's really why we see the rise of the selfie. And of course, that all-important head tilt in which women are 50% more guilty than men. So, we tell stories, we narrate, and indeed, we shard our identities across our social networks to change and to define who we are and who we want to be. 
We're seeking meaning and yearning to be part of something with major significance, Baroness Susan Greenfield identified in Mind Change, her book published earlier this year. People need a narrative, an identity and a storyline. Hence, the rise of the word faction. This combination, this merge between fiction and fact that most of us no longer crave authenticity. How boring is authenticity? How real is authenticity? Why not make things up? As we discovered when we looked at Facebook earlier this year and found the postings of a 25-year-old Dutch graphic designer called Zilla van den Born, who had faked an entire two-month trip across Southeast Asia by posting photoshopped images of herself on Facebook while remaining in her studio, convincing all of her friends that she had gone on this epic tour to Southeast Asia. It was Joan Didion, the author, who remarked, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. So is such a grand journey into fantasy unethical? Or is it actually an exploration into the human mind and into our, our ability to tell stories that defines and that indeed makes us who we are? Now, let's move from the selfie to think about this idea of sharing. We now live in a world that increasingly is no longer about the accumulation of stuff, that which defined what it meant to be a successful consumer in the 20th century. Increasingly, it's actually about cultivating new metrics of value, that commodities are challenged and parodied, that indeed our own reputations, our ratings, our time, our data, and even our likes are emerging as new intangible currencies in which we trade in what's being called the me economy, where the focus is on me and my personal worth. And of course, we're all beginning to witness how the number of people who participate in online sharing or reselling services is beginning to grow. There are 80 million sharers in the US and 23 million in the UK. Car sharing in China, that lovely middle-class opportunity that we have here in a city like Melbourne or in London, is of course great news in a, in a, in a country like China where there is a real lack of resource. So car sharing in China is currently growing at 83 because there it delivers real value and real opportunity because suddenly it's not about every single consumer having to buy their own car. Think of the environmental pressure that exists with that idea but indeed the acceptance that I no longer need to own a car, that my status isn't judged by the idea that I own this bottle, this box of metal. So the global sharing economy is estimated to grow, according to PwC, from 17.3 billion Australian dollars now to 347 billion Australian dollars by 2025. So the question to all of us here is what are we prepared to share? What are we prepared to give up ownership of that we no longer feel has to be tethered to us, that makes us feel special. Can you give up your car? Can you give up your bicycle? Can you give up your washing machine? Could you give up your lawnmower? Could you give up your house? Well, of course, millions of us across the planet already do give up our houses on a regular basis and open our doors to strangers 
courtesy of Airbnb, a company that is less than five years old and is now valued at more than 10 billion US dollars, making all of its founders who are just over the age of 30 instant billionaires. billionaires. That makes Airbnb worth more than the Hyatt Hotels Group, which has a market value of $8.4 billion, and the Wyndham Worldwide Corp, valued at $9.3 billion. And as Joe Harpaz, the writer, recently commented in Forbes magazine back in May, the issue that we have to understand here is not the simple one of sharing, but the seismic changes that lie underneath it that have already happened, that have affected and changed our business structures whether we like it or not. Technology has removed the middleman, which creates real challenges for a regulatory system that's rooted in physical supply chains for a hundred years. So the arguments about taxation and taxation of Airbnb consumers or taxation of those people who decide to open their doors to strangers is really, again, another horse, stable, bolted conversation, similar, of course, to the one that we witnessed in, in Melbourne a couple of years back, internet sales, taxation, bolted, gone. Now, this, of course, creates confrontation because many people are wedded to the 20th century. That's where they live still. That's where they feel comfortable because, of course, that's where they're from. But there will be clashes as new social platforms challenge established institutions. And as the futurist Bruce Sterling recently commented, after some of the uh, clashes that we saw, for example, at the Wired Next Festival in Milan, where taxi drivers deliberately and forcibly ended a speech by a representative of Uber, he commented, when Uber takes over your town, they have all the power and these taxi drivers, that, sorry, they have all the power that these taxi drivers have and more. An epic struggle is at hand. Because, of course, what Uber are interested in is not really owning the taxi journey in your city. Uber are interested in owning the logistics systems that define how your country conduct its, conducts itself from a financial perspective. They lie at the heart of 21st century commerce. Let's move on. I talked about the photobomb. Think back, please, to the 25th of July, 2014, when those lovely hockey roos, Jade Taylor and Brooke Perris, took that now famous picture and photobombed they were indeed by HRH, Her Majesty the Queen. And we see that sense of how culture changes, how that moment really did have an impact on us all as we saw the Commonwealth Games and that moment of friendship and engagement and the humour from her in the back of the image, just smiling away, a happy 83-year-old. What about our data boom? We now live in a world surrounded by data. And as the amount of online data continues to grow, all of us have become more aware both of its value but also its misuse. Our digital universe is going to multiply tenfold between 2013 to 2020 to contain over 44 trillion gigabytes, a figure that is incomprehensible to all of us here. We simply cannot imagine its size or what that means. 
However, the US Federal Trade Commission has also agreed that the data industry operates with a fundamental lack of transparency. So no wonder any of us can understand it or really begin to understand its impact. We live in a world of constant comment. Tiffany Schlein, who is the co-founder of the International Academy of the Digital Arts and Sciences, recently quoted in a Pew Internet survey that access to the Internet will be an international human right by 2025. Access to the Internet is a human right. No wonder, therefore, that increasingly more of us are worried about FOMO, fear of missing out, that it is estimated 56% of US social media users are afraid of missing out on events, news and status updates when away from their devices, that they have to feel always on. And recent research in the UK has shown that UK workers have two hours and 45 minutes of free time a day as opposed to in 1995, when they had six hours and 49 minutes of free time a day. Why? Because you didn't have one of these. Because you weren't answering work emails the, th the moment you got out of bed. Because you weren't responding to an email the moment you thought about going to sleep, and it wasn't occupying your mind when you were waiting at the bus stop, waiting for the lights to change, or indeed trying to eat your lunch. You were potentially free. Now, from freedom to being pointless. Who here has heard of Alfie Days? Hands up who's heard of Alfie Days. Absolutely none of you. And that is the whole point of Pointless. Alfie Days is probably the biggest celebrity that you've never heard of. His video channel Pointless Blog, which shows snippets of him doing daft things such as smearing his face with Nutella or just larking about with his mates, has 2.9 million YouTube subscribers. His Pointless Book went straight to the top of the Sunday Times bestseller list in the UK with 30,000 copies sold in two weeks. His homemade movies have been watched 137 million times. Police had to call off an appearance at a London bookshop by him when 8,000 fans turned up for his book signing only 700 people turned up at a similar signing at the same shop for David Beckham. They rescheduled his book signing to last six hours, and, the, and it took place at Excel, which is a conference centre the size of the one that you'll find in Sydney. That's the point of Alfie Days. Now, I'm quite interested in him and his pointless blog, and I started to look at what people had also said about his pointless book. So I thought I'd look at some of the reviews, and this, I think, was one of my favourite. This is a blog review from Amber Kirk Ford. She has a, a blog, a book review, called The Mile Long Bookshelf. I exhort you to have a look at her blog. I'm going to quote directly from her review of The Pointless Book. I'll admit I wasn't hugely excited about the book when it first announced, when it was first announced, but by the end of Alfie's personal video where he revealed the book, I was fangirling so hard. 
I personally love books like this. Having filled my copy of Wreck This Journal, a similar book, I was in need of something else. And then this book was revealed. Good timing, I'd say, that this is much more fun and definitely more random. I think the Draw Genitals on the People Below page proves that. But my favourite page, yet to be completed, is Places I'd Like to Travel To, which for me is pretty much everywhere. Tellingly, the Pointless book comes with a free app with exclusive content, because clearly it's not enough for the book to do the job that the book does itself. It has to be supported by an app. Let's move from the pointless to the pointed when we think about this idea of constant comment and celebrity. Some of you may be, have been aware that on October the 7th, um, national and international media started to publish news about a certain social media user called Brenda Leyland. Here, and I quote again from uh, The Mirror, which is a UK newspaper, social media users are calling for a public inquiry into the death of Brenda Leyland, 63, who died after being exposed on Sky News for sending vile tweets to Kate and Jerry McCann. The internet troll who took her own life and tweeted 4,220 times about the family of Madeleine McCann in one year was a churchgoer and was found dead in a hotel after a TV news crew confronted her about her Twitter account. The divorcee's messages accused Madeline's parents, Jerry and Kate, both 46, of neglect and a cover-up over the disappearance of their daughter in Praia de Luz in Portugal in May 2007. Brenda closed the, the account, but the messages she posted as sweepy face had been saved in an online cache. There surely is the pointy end of our life and our social existence in this world of constant comment. But what does it mean to be in this world of constant feedback, of constant noise, of constant messaging and constant stories, where indeed what we seem to be paying is continuous partial attention, that we are all motivated by a desire to be a live node on the network. Now, according to Professor Linda Stone, who is a sociologist and works for Microsoft, amongst other organizations, another way of saying this is that we want to connect and be connected. We want to effectively scan for opportunity and optimize for the best opportunities, activities and contact, uh, contacts at any given moment. That to be busy, to be connected, is to be alive, to be recognized, and to matter. To feel that we are important, that we matter. And as a result... We are paying continuous partial attention. We are not multitasking, trying to do as many things as well as we can, as often as possible. We are paying continuous partial attention. Only a bit of us is actually doing something well. And as she remarks, in a 24-7, always-on world, continuous partial attention used as our dominant attention mode contributes to a feeling of overwhelm, overstimulation, and to a sense of being unfulfilled. We are so accessible, we're inaccessible. What about the Internet of Things? That expression that also defines life here 
in 2014, in the 21st century. Now, again, it's been predicted that by 2020, the number of items connected to the Internet of Things will rise to 26 billion, with connectivity as a standard feature. Now, just what does that mean for those of us who don't really understand what the Internet of Things is? Well, all it means is that this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and maybe even this, might actually be able to talk each other without the dumb human getting in the way. That actually my phone might be able to tell my home that I'm just around the corner. Time to turn on the air conditioning. Time to maybe put the oven on. Time to get ready for Chris to come home. That sense that how advantageous that will be, how energy-saving, how environmentally friendly that might be, that I don't have to leave my lights on, I don't have to preset the house that my home will know when I'm about to arrive. That simply is the Internet of Things, that more and more of our devices that run off electricity will be able to connect to other devices that run off electricity. 26 billion devices all talking to each other in a world in which it is estimated there will be 7.8 billion of us. Do the division to work out just how many of those devices you're likely to have in this developed economy. So, what is all of this remodeling doing to us? And what does it mean to be human here in the 21st century with all of this going on? Time to go back to Baroness Susan Greenfield and another quote from Mind Change. Your brain can only do what it is used to doing. But of course we're changing what our brain is doing. We are reconditioning what it's used to doing. And as she has commented, our brain is but a muscle. You use it so you don't lose it. But as you exercise it, it grows. It changes. Just as your body shape changes as you decide to use particular muscles. That's why the muscle or the brain of a London taxi driver is different in shape from the brain from everyone else here in the room because they exercise different parts of their brains when they imagine the routes that they have to take and that they have to learn as part of the knowledge, the exercise system that they have to know by heart in order to be privileged enough to be a London taxi driver. If only we had that here in Melbourne. <laughs> and as Baroness Susan Greenfield continued to say, as we spend less time looking at and talking to each other, there is a danger that we will forget how to read the signals between two people unmediated by a screen. Use it or lose it. And perhaps this is the greatest and most important quality that we need to recognize in a space such as the M Pavilion. Use it or lose it. Because there's one thing going on here that is as unpopular, as unfashionable, and dare I say, as untrendy a word as civics. Congregation. And yet that's what we are here today. A congregation. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Chris. That was a deliciously intriguing account of self, selfies and society via Guy Debord and Kim Kardashian. Very <laughs> impressive. Um, I thought perhaps we could start off by digressing and talking about the Futures Laboratory and if you could divulge how you undertake some of your forecasting, you know, what, what kind of methodologies do you use, research? Oh, yes, we all love analogy, don't we? Intuition. Yes. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, okay, so uh, the Future Laboratory was set up in uh, uh, tw sorry, 2001. So we've been going about uh, 13, 14 years now. And it was set up really with a very simple premise, which is that when we observed uh, forecasting, which was very established within, say, the fashion business, uh, it, its success rate was often based on people who would stand up and, and have lovely visuals on the screen, and they would kind of go, oh, I see blue. And everyone would be there writing loads of notes going, oh, it's all about blue, lovely. And then they would take that back to their fashion industry, and it would help them to understand what was going on in terms of the notion of trend. And, but, of course, one of the problems we've got is that the word trend has really now is misguidedly used along with trendy to think about style whereas the word trend which actually is over 600 years old and has its roots in old english and middle german originally meant turn and then by the beginning of the, the 20th century it actually meant direction and it was used primarily by mathematicians in relation to a graph to show actually how things were moving or had a tendency to move from one thing to another so trend was the idea that things were trending often from something that was niche and small um, to something that was bigger. And then trend forecasting grew really out of research that was done in the 50s studying wheat farmers in Iowa. Because what the sociologists who started to do this work noticed was that actually you could be tracking wheat farmers, you could be tracking any group or, or, or population or community. The number of people within any given community who were operating in the same way or who were adapting newness was pretty much the same. But by studying an enclosed community like wheat farmers in Iowa and how they would actually engage or uh, embrace a, a new wheat type, a new crop, for example, or a new piece of machinery, enabled them to un better understand how newness transferred through society. And what they observed was that less than 2.5% of us are what you would call um, innovators, that we're the people that bring newness to a culture. You then have about 12.5% of us who are innovators, I'm sorry, who are early adopters, who look at the work of an innovator and go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I want a bit of that. Um, we all know an, uh, an early adopter, and there are probably quite a few of you here because that's why you're here. You're an early adopter. Um, but you're the ones who always know about that new book, that new restaurant, um, the new piece of technological quit bef uh, quick kit before any of your friends. And then the majority of the population, about 68%, is evenly split between being um, the, uh, what's called um, uh, early mainstream and then um, your late mainstream. And then right at the back, you have your laggards, which make up about 15% of the global population. Now, why is that relevant? Because our job at the Future Laboratory, through a process that we call trend, tre um, cultural triangulation, is to exactly understand where a business or brand, we're a commercial organization, sits on what's called the diffusion of innovation curve, and also where their target consumer sits. Because if you can identify both where you are as a business and where your consumer is, then you understand exactly the type of product you need to deliver to that consumer and when it's going to be appropriate. Because as we all know, there are lots of great ideas out there, and often they get launched out to all of us, and they just go, and they fall, and they fail, because normally they're either too late or too early. There simply aren't the right people there to take that idea and go, wow, this is fantastic, I love it. The perfect example for me is mobile marketing. An awful phrase. I hate to use it amongst such esteemed people here. But 
mobile marketing started really when mobile started, and it was about pushing commercial content on your phone to us as people who used phones. When it first happened, all of us, to a man and woman, hated the concept because our phones were private, and we used them either for business calls, which were private, or we used them to talk to our family and friends. And it wasn't until 3G came along and apps came along that suddenly we went, oh, I love these app things, and look at what you can do with them. And oh, look, suddenly Qantas have made this app that makes my life easier, that enables me to check into my flight on my phone while I'm on the go. I'll have a bit of that, please. Oh, Maya have made an app that lets me... No, they haven't. But, you know, <laughs> you wish they had. You get the point. And so now we're really happy to have all of these brands on our phones because they actually are providing a service, they're valuable, and you see the point. And so the way we work as an organization is to help people and brands to maximize the commercial potential of what lies around the corner, what's new and what's next. We're, we're a business. I'm sure there's lots of questions from the audience. Silence. Uh, well, perhaps, Chris, you could discuss the role of culture in the kind of selfie society that you describe. Yes. I'm particularly interested in mm. the role of design and architecture, which is something that we're embracing through M Pavilion. Well, look, I think one of the interesting things that we're seeing, uh, and I don't want to necessarily think about just self, because I think within the concept of self, it, yes, whilst we can think about the selfie, and there's the, obviously there's a lot to, to almost parody in the idea of selfie. I hope we're all pre-ordering, by the way, our Kim Kardashian selfie book, which comes out in April and is a coffee tome of 298 pages uh, of selfies, it's just photographs taken by Kim Kardashian. Um, we, the notion of self, I think, is defining our relationship with space. It's de redefining our relationship with each other. And rather than thinking about community, which is important, as I think you've guessed from, from the intimation of, of, of what I've delivered, that unless we figure out this sense of self right now, I don't think we can make much progress in working out where we, what we value in community and society. So I think... The, the relative relationship between building and the individual is of prime importance right now. And so for me, that's often about buildings that can be interactive. It's about buildings where the technology will become more seamless, where it doesn't become an obsession, where we're walking around obsessing about things and making things work, that actually increasingly the technology will just become more and more invisible that it will enable us to do things. So, for example, within retail, I expect more and more to be able to walk into a retail environment and for the store to know that I'm there. And so for the store to actually be able to potentially welcome me and say, hi, Chris, um, we're really pleased you've come back to the store today because we know you like shopping with us, so, you know, welcome back. And maybe that could mean that they'd extend the welcome by asking um, a shop person to actually come and say hello to me personally and ask me if I'm a good customer, if I needed any help or service. So I think we'll see all sorts of ways in which the technology becomes more backgrounded. It's not as obvious. Let's remember that you know, um, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger once said, we only begin to understand technology when we cease to notice it. And the point is, of, of course, we are all still at the obsessive stage. We are all just so obsessed by it. But talk to somebody under the age of 15, and it's a totally different story, because for them it's intuitive, it's immersive, it's interactive. He says just swiping as he talks, because, of course, <laughs> that's what we know all kids under 15 do. In fact, one of my colleagues at work who uh, has a, a four-year-old 
um, came into work the other day and said, do you know what, my little son slapped me around the face the other day because I was talking to him and he was just going, Push. and I said, you can't do that to me. Don't slap me around the face. And he said, I'm not slapping you, Daddy. I'm swiping you. You're boring. <laughs> Move on. Move on. So there is a whole new lexicon. There's a whole new kind of semantics being created by our engagement with technology, whether we like it or not, because we're not part of that generation. We will be dead by the time that they really you know, are, are, are in the position that we are in now for, for many of us. So that sense, I think, of, of how technology interacts with with space will be hugely important because we can expect our spaces to become so much more personal. Now, for many of us, this represents a challenge because many of us have privacy issues around those. Promise me, you'll get over those over the next decade as we have with things around the mobile phone. When I first started talking about mobile phones, most people didn't see the point of them. They said, I have a phone on my desk at work. What do I need one of these for? When I step away from my desk, I'm too important to be bothered by a phone call. That was the prevalent attitude in business about a decade ago. Think about how you couldn't possibly work like that now. And indeed, if one of your employees said that to you, you would probably sack them. But when we think about design, I think a lot of what we're seeing within a design context relates to this notion of, the again, the Internet of Things, which is that increasingly everything has a chip element to it. Everything has the ability potentially to talk to another device and to relate to how our lives are in a process of change or a process of flux, that they can actually demonstrate um, the ability to, to fluctuate according to our need, that they can become so much more personal, that they can become designed by us. And I also think the process of intransigence that we witnessed in the 20th century, defined by mass manufacturing, is really what we'll begin to see an end of here in the 21st, that more of our objects are designed according to our individual need, and that each of us has a greater part to play in the role of design, that design becomes more collaborative, that we do lose some of the elements of hierarchy that exist currently in design, that the process becomes more conversational, that creativity is born equally between the maker, the creator, the architect, and the client, that this becomes also, hopefully, a more harmonious relationship, a more equitable relationship. Chris, how do yes. we manage to move from being old 20th century people to this new sort of person that you're talking about? How do, Ms. Uh, um, Ms. Milgram, thank you very much indeed. A very good question. How do we move from being a 21st century person? Look, I think there are elements. I mean, if you look at the sociological uh, work that's been done, <coughs> some of us can't because our brains are just wired in a certain way. If you are a laggard, you are a laggard. And that's where you are on, the ch on, on, on that diffusion of innovation curve. You are very comfortable in the past. You surround yourself with tradition. You like it. You're very happy there. And the issue, of course, is that as society moves and you fail to move with it, you can end up feeling left out and you see a world change around you and you end up going, where do I fit into all of this? I have no place in this. That's a natural process that isn't just about aging. It is about a state of mind. And some of us have the ability to constantly refresh our state of minds, and some of us don't, which is why we always have to play catch-up. Um, how do we, if we want to, do that? Well, I think the majority of us are part of the mainstream. So there will always be a point at which something becomes acceptable because the majority of us are doing it. So there is that point at which we all jump because everyone else is doing it. 
So you will see uh, that, that point at which your attitude towards something will change because that's what we've done. We've changed. And you can just think about all of our issues. Take your, our standing on public health, for example. Probably 10 years ago, even if we weren't smokers, most of us were fairly relaxed in our attitude towards smoking. We would put up with smoking in restaurants. We would put up with smoking in public places, indeed in offices. We might have had smoking areas, but it was acceptable. Would any of us now go back to a situation where we allowed smoking in a restaurant or in an office of work? I would say probably every single one of us would say, no, it's no longer acceptable. That absolutely is about the change of mind and position that we go through as a society once the norms begin to change. Now, the issue, of course, with progression is that it's never easy, it's never smooth. It's always a bumpy ride. So I think, and I believe, we've... We call this decade the turbulent teens. It's the teen decade, and, but also we use that expression because we think it's behaving a bit like a teenager. It's up and down. It's pretty hormonal. So it's a bumpy ride. So at the moment, there are times when everything feels great and everything feels like it's progression and it's moving in the right way. And then there are other times where we all feel, this is just horrible. I hate it. No. Why? 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 And it's not fair. And we tend to say that a lot. Um, and, and that sense, I think, of how we react is, is very human, it's very honest, and it's very heartfelt, but we then change our position. If we want to spearhead change, if we really want to push ourselves and accept newness and difference, some of us just have to plain work at it. We have to understand that in order to remain relevant, we have to maybe look at what our kids are teaching us. But I think most of us are already aware that one of the big shifts that we've seen in our society over the last 20 years is that we now no longer down-age education. We up-age education. That we turn to those younger than ourselves to learn more about what's going on. So we're, we've already embarked on that journey of looking to those who potentially are at the cutting edge of newness and change to help us understand how we remodel ourselves rather than maybe relying on more 20th century uh, formats of doing that. Do we have any questions? Ah, yes, could There's you please come up here. to the microphone? Oh, go on. Um, if we could have you at the microphone, because we're recording tonight, so we would actually like to be able to record your question. Thank you so much. How we avoid, while we become 20th century people, we don't lose some of the things that we actually do like, not only about the 20th century, about all the centuries that humans have existed and built on, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and think that everything new is what we need. Yep. Because there is an awful lot of stuff that's going on that's making people very anxious. Yep. And there's a lot from past centuries that give people a lot of pleasure, comfort, and is pretty good, you know? Um, yep. Leonardo and stuff. What do we do? Well, uh, Shakespeare. It's, it's, so it's, how do we keep How that? do we keep that? Well, that's the role. That, that's probably the most important question of the evening, isn't it? Because all of us only know what we know. And we only pass on to another human being what we choose to pass on. And when we die, everything we experienced, all our memories, all our lives, currently, everything about us dies with us. Unless we either record, we transcribe, we translate, we communicate. So we can do that individually, 
you know, one of the things that interests me is how probably in my lifetime I've lost great swathes of my life in this shift from paper and pen to computer because I haven't kept records, I haven't kept my emails, I haven't kept my blogs, I haven't kept all of my digital photos. I've lost great swathes of my life because I haven't recorded them in the way that I might have done had I been part of the 20th century and had a scrapbook and a photograph album and an old-fashioned written diary. And that's the shift that we've got to go through, isn't it? From a sense of self and a sense of self-inquiry and a self-engagement to our duty, civics, as citizens, to think about what is valuable in our current society and what is, what is worth preserving, not just from today, but from the societies that defined our parents and our grandparents and, and the civilizations before us. That is our responsibility to the human race. And that is something that is a constant challenge and a constant responsibility. And that is a role that we all have to play. And if we decide that we're no longer going to use an organization like the church to record what actually it means to be human, to educate our next generation, if we're not going to use a civic organization like the Rotary Club or the Women's Institute to transmit information and to share and to educate a whole new generation of women about skills or if we're not going to use a union organization in which to create a fair and justifiably um, uh, 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 equitable working environment for other um, people within our societies, then we better start thinking what is important to us as a society so that we aren't just thinking about the individual, we are thinking about the common goals that we have and the values and the ethics and the morals and the elements of our society that we wish to pr uh, uh, preserve for our future generations. Just thinking about um, the, the influences on, on what we all think about. I mean, have you thought about how Big Brother could be using the technologies to be seriously influencing huge numbers of us in rising up to um, believing something that they just want to plant now? Okay, so when you say b Big Brother, can you define what you mean by Big Brother, please? Oh, some uh, pervasive um, organisation that wants to sort of sway the population to be sort of going down a different course. Okay. And planting, it, using the, so the social media. As right. look, making okay. it look as if it's... Yeah the population that's thinking this, but it might be mm -hmm. an orchestrated mm -hmm. few. Um, I, I'm not aware of any such organisation. I've not heard about one, uh, I, I, and I'm not aware of any uh, sort of uh, news that there's one around the corner. Um, as far as I'm aware, most of the organisations that were created that define how uh, the internet is used and how the connective platforms that define our ICT technology, information communication technology, are benign, and actually better than benign, are n certainly not amoral. Most of them are actually highly moral and are organized and, and monitored by a group of people who set the internet up, often with a very positive view of, of, of its role that it can play in society and for the good of mankind. However, of course, I'm all aware that many of us have concerns and have, uh, are scared about exactly what the future may hold. As I said earlier, I think often our, our fears are unfounded. Um, 
and I think really what we need to do is understand that the, that the issue again lies with a responsibility for us to take control and to understand that we each have the ability to take control, to be in control of our own data, to decide what and what we do or do not do, um, and to actually often be more vocal with how our data may or may not be used. And this, of course, will be one of the preeminent issues of the next 10 years. As I've kind of uh, hinted, I believe, however, we are facing a privacy bump over the next decade. And as that bump looms at the moment, it becomes more of a concern and it becomes an issue that more and more of us are aware of. But I believe when we get over the other side, many of us will kind of go, well, what was that all about? Because the advantages of sharing data, of understanding how our data can actually be processed, how it can be used, will outweigh the negatives. The advantages, to my mind, will outweigh the negatives. And yes, we have to be responsible, and yes, we have to maintain vigilance, but the positives for me clearly outweigh the negatives. Thank you, Chris, for an utterly compelling presentation, and that brings tonight's talk to a close. I do hope you can join us tomorrow evening for Ben Evans uh, from the London Design Festival, who will be presenting a lecture at the Clemenger Auditorium across the road at the NGV. And uh, further details of all our programming is available on our website. So please join me in thanking Chris Anderson. Thank you.